Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise, and then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Bradley Jardine. Bradley is the research director at the OXA Society for Central Asian Affairs and a global fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., We'll discuss his new publication, Great Wall of Steel, China's global campaign to suppress the Uyghurs, which draws on a groundbreaking data set and years of research to document how China targets the Uyghurs far beyond its own borders. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So we met when we were both at the Wilson Center. Let me give a quick shout out to that wonderful institution um, here in Washington, D.C., where you have just published your new and terrific monograph, Great Wall of Steel. You've also written a great essay for, for us here at The New Statesman on this subject, which we will put in the show notes for readers. I think many listeners will be aware of China's campaign against the Uyghurs within its own borders. So I think we all tend to think about you know the, the harrowing testimony the images coming out of internment camps and the stories of of torture and abuses in Xinjiang. But I think what's so important about your work is how you demonstrate that this is by no means confined to China, that in fact, the reach of this campaign goes far beyond China's own borders. So I wondered if you could start by just giving us a a sense of the, the headline findings here, what you found about how far this campaign goes and the extent of China's global reach to pursue the the Uyghurs in various countries around the world? Yeah, this study looked to take the story about what was happening in Xinjiang and position it in a, a global context, really looking at how the securitization of the region has impacted China's foreign policy making. It started with a study of Central Asia, the post-Soviet republics of Central Asia, but quickly expanded outwards when I saw the real scale of what, of what was happening. In the end, I've really tracked transnational repression to 44 countries where it's been exercised and some 1,500 cases of what I refer to as stage two and three. This refers to more extreme forms of repression, such as being arrested or detained within the countries where Uyghurs are residing or being deported or extradited back to China. But there are over 5,000 other cases I refer to as stage one. These are cyber attacks and and so-called like softer everyday methods of repression. This would be calls from security officials in Xinjiang 
to people residing in places such as North America. Or more alarmingly, and, and probably the most effective tactic, is intimidating family members who continue to reside within the People's Republic of China and using them as, as leverage to threaten or curtail any activism in different parts of the world. So really, what my data set tracks transnational repression starting in 1997 with Pakistan. That was one of the first countries to extradite 12 Uyghur students at China's behest. And Central Asia, of course, had been a, a key focus. And one of the reasons for this is it has a, a large Uyghur diaspora of some two to 300,000 residing there. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and you know, following the events of Tiananmen, China's increasingly insular outlook in the 1990s, it really became more proactive in policing and surveilling Uyghur diaspora units, including like museums, art galleries, etc., were shut down across Central Asia in the 1990s. So that was really the, the first place we saw repression unfold. And then over time, it really grew out to encompass Southeast Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, and even Europe and North America. Can you give us an example of the kind of individual cases that you documented here and what, what this looks like for some of the individual families involved. I'm thinking, for instance, about, you know, the, the family that you, you write about in, in your piece for the New Statesman uh, that's currently awaiting deportation in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the family who are detained in Saudi Arabia, this is one of the cases in which Saudi Arabia has become a key partner of China, of course, with not only Belt and Road investments, but also oil purchases. And there's been a lot of growing ties, including Saudi Arabia giving rhetorical support, and the signing of two UN letters endorsing its security practices within Xinjiang. But increasingly, there's also this other part of the story, which is um, the detention of Uyghurs. So the case you refer to is a woman and her 13-year-old daughter who were recently detained in Saudi Arabia and have been sent to a detention center where they're awaiting deportation. I haven't followed in to see whether there's been any movement on that situation, but as far as I'm aware, they, they've yet to be deported. But this really shows the dangers that Uyghurs face when they go to visit family members in places such as Saudi Arabia or whether they participate in religious pilgrimages such as the Hajj, which has become a, a focal point for China and its security services. Other cases, are, of course, of just intimidation using international organizations. So one that would probably most interest listeners would be Interpol, the World Police Coordination Mechanism. That's really been exploited by China, which has been issuing a large number of red notices, which can lead to the detention of targeted individuals when they try traveling. One thing that's important with these is it's not even just to invoke necessarily being deported back to China. They can also just harass people and, and make their lives difficult. So someone who's been targeted a lot by red notices was Dol Kunisa, who is the president of the World Uyghur Congress. He's been detained in multiple countries. So I've tracked his detentions across, I think, six countries in total, including South Korea, India, because this red notice kept flagging him as a, as a suspect. So just attending things like conferences or political activist gatherings around the world in Washington, etc., those can be quite dangerous if you have a red notice. And oftentimes people don't know they have a red notice issued because it's a non-transparent process. So many people don't find out they have a red notice issued against them until they leave. This was a case of another Uyghur called Idris Hassan, who last year was detained in Morocco after he fled Turkey 
he's been detained and awaiting extradition to China using an extradition treaty between Morocco and China that was signed as part of a broader economic cooperation agreement. When you talk about the Interpol system, I'm really reminded of some of what faces Russian activists too. And I, you know, I, I know Bill Browder has written about this in, in both of his books about really you know walking up to the border, you know, holding your breath to find out is you know is this the time that that you've been flagged? Is there now a, is there a red notice? Are you going to be pulled aside for for questioning? To what extent has has China and and perhaps have, have authoritarian regimes more broadly? I don't know if weaponized is the right word, but to what stage are they exploiting that system to intimidate and harass and really to chill into into silence activists around the world? Yeah, it's definitely been a, a growing trend. And as you say, it's not just China. It's a whole host of autocratic states, including Turkey, Russia, Rwanda as well. Interpol red notice issuances have increased tenfold over the past decade. And even unlikely cases that you wouldn't expect are using it, such as Tajikistan, very small post-Soviet republic in Central Asia. But the statistics are are pretty extreme, where it accounts for just 0.2% of the world's population, but 3% of all issued red notices, as the regime has tried to silence opposition members. So it's just an extent of just, it's not even just at the, the regime level where transnational repression is growing, but actually sub-national republics as well have become active. And you you write about how consular services are also being used here as a tool of transnational repression. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and specifically how, how passports are being used in this campaign? Yeah, one of the things that's left Uyghurs particularly vulnerable is the denial of consular services. So essentially, the Chinese government has been refusing to renew passports for Uyghurs who are residing in places such as Turkey. Instead, it gives them a one-way travel document and informs them that they must return to China in order to have their passport renewed. So Uyghurs who have voluntarily returned to renew the passports, my report I've actually traced using the Xinjiang Victims Database project by Jean Moonen, who's been tracking a lot of the court documents, etc., and testimonies of individuals within the camps in Xinjiang. A lot of the individuals who returned from overseas to replace passports have turned up in his data sets as well. So you see that Uyghurs are being brought back, thinking that they're replacing their passports, and many of them then turn up in a re-education centre. So this just shows the immediate threat they faced. The other aspect of it is that once their passports have expired, they're, of course, in a position of enforced statelessness. Essentially, they have no rights and privileges within the countries they reside, and they're actually vulnerable to being deported for violating immigration rules, which is one of the most commonplace forms for Uyghurs being sent back to China. Sometimes Uyghurs aren't even violating their immigration rules, but the the governments will say that they are in an effort to deport them. But the the case of this, you know, weaponized passports just accelerates this process by leaving thousands of Uyghurs without rights in countries such as Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Turkey. What have you found about what awaits them when they do return? I know you've you've been tracking some of the the sentences people are receiving and and the conditions that they're that they're facing there. Yeah, it's very broad um, set of problems. So for example, there was a case in Egypt in 2017 where 
over 200 students were deported back to China from Egypt. Some of those who returned voluntarily after receiving calls from Xinjiang security services, they, they ended up receiving very harsh sentences, one called Sami Bari. He received life imprisonment. And there are several other Uyghurs who have received such harsh sentences as well. And even in the more extreme cases, there have been at least two Uyghurs from this Egyptian bulk deportation case in 2017 who were later found dead in police custody. Uh, little information has been made available as to what conditions they were in, how this, how this occurred, but they have been reported deceased. And just, yeah, the broader range, some dissidents in the past who've been deported from Pakistan have later been executed. They've been accused of engagement with international terror organizations with little to no evidence for these accusations. The trials uh, lacked transparency and later reported that they were executed. So it's really a broad range depending on the accusations that have been made against them, but they're in a very dangerous position. Mm-hmm. A lot of people may be surprised that there is not more outcry from Muslim-majority countries, you know, from some of the, the states that position themselves on other issues as leaders of the, of the Muslim world. How do you account for the relative silence on this you know, very real persecution and the grave threats that you're laying out here against these individuals once they're returned to China? The broad interests of the Islamic world have been one of the primary findings of the report is just how geopolitics has often trumped a sense of solidarity. Really, this project began with my interest in Kazakhstan, where I'd been focusing on Atajur, the political activist movement that was raising awareness um, using victim testimonies, people fleeing Xinjiang into Kazakhstan, or local Kazakh protests about ethnic Kazakhs who were being detained in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And I started to see the government trying to suppress these movements or some of the behind the scenes negotiations between the Kazakh government and China calling for the release of certain numbers of Kazakhs with family members in Kazakhstan to sort of quell these these protests. So I became interested in the the political difficulties China's crackdown in Xinjiang was causing for its immediate neighborhood. And as I began to dig into the, the topic more, I just found this broad array of interests. Pakistan, for example, is just a close ally of China. It's very vocal across the Muslim world. Cases of Palestinians, Rohingya, etc. Pakistan is very outspoken, but when it comes to the case of the Uyghurs, it's it's not outspoken. In some cases, it's even supported China's policies. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has deported a large number of Uyghurs over the years. And part of this is, of course, that China is a major arms supplier and strategic ally for Pakistan. And Pakistan's foreign policy is really dictated by its relations with India. Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, you really see as China's trade relations have grown, particularly after 2013 with the launch of the Belt and Road, there's just been a lot more cooperation and collaboration to bring investments, oil purchases, and agreements between the security services. And then in the case of Turkey, it's long been a vocal advocate for the the Uyghur people. I mean, Erdogan in 2009, in the aftermath of the Urumqi crackdown in China, you know, he referred to the situation or China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide. That was in 2009. 
But since 2016, with Turkey's crackdown on the Gulenist movement, it's become increasingly isolated on the world stage. It's increasingly criticized by the West and by allies. And China's really been a willing partner. So as this relationship has grown, we've even seen that Turkey has become a less, less of a safe haven for Uyghurs as well. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about how China has exploited the, the global war on terror narrative. So how that framing is being used by Beijing to attempt to justify or or legitimize their own actions and present what they're doing in Xinjiang and against the Uyghurs more broadly as part of this international war on terror effort. Yeah. So before 2002, China's, of course, had struggles with Xinjiang region tried developing it. There's been several violent incidents throughout the 1990s. But China always referred to these as separatist incidents, claiming that there was a sustained separatist movement trying to create an independent East Turkestan, as Uyghur nationalists would refer to it. But since 2002, this has all become repackaged, where every instance of violence or conflict between security services and locals within the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region have been framed as terrorists. And there's been increasing accusations that Uyghur organizations have connections to terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda. China's been issuing lists claiming that prominent activists have links to Al-Qaeda without any evidence given in these, these instances. And a lot of the violence that has occurred in Xinjiang, you know, I emphasize that there there is, of course, violence there, but it's packaged in a way with China that they argue there's international terror links, so these are premeditated forms of violence. A lot of it's actually localized in response to the tense security environment. I mean, one case that comes to mind is, I believe it was 2013, where Chinese security services went to a wedding in Xinjiang and forcibly removed the veil of the, of the bride, and this sparked a mass brawl, which later turned into a shooting as security services killed several of the attendees. So that's an example of the kind of localized violence, which has become more commonplace as the security situation has grown more tense. But the later reporting by Chinese media will refer to such incidents as premeditated acts of terror, where really you see that these are spontaneous. And the most glaring example of this is, of course, 2009 with the Urumqi riots in which ethnic Han and ethnic Uyghurs were essentially murdering each other in the streets in this very spontaneous ethnic violence um, which engulfed the city. And that's been referred to in Chinese media as China's 9-11 a lot. So really any of these instances of, of unrest, tension, or inter-ethnic tensions have been prepackaged as acts of terror in a way to build China's crackdown really as engaged as part of the war on terror. And this has also allowed it to pursue Uyghurs overseas, where you know, some of the cases we've mentioned, such as Uyghurs in Pakistan, China's alleged that they have links to the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which is a small-scale Uyghur force, which in recent years has had a military wing active in Syria. But there's been no attributed attacks that have shown that this organization has any international capabilities, let alone an ability to launch and coordinate attacks within Xinjiang itself. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. 
That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you talk about the international aspects of, of this campaign, I wonder whether you could also just unpack for us a little bit of, you know, alluded to this this at the start, but the gradations in the level of campaign and, and the threats that, that people are facing. And you mentioned people facing beyond the threat of physical deportation and, you know, the cancellation of, of passports and being required to return to China, the threats that people face on online, the threats that that they are, are facing in terms of cybersecurity, um, surveillance. Can you talk a little bit about we're sitting here in, in the United States where we would like to believe our, our, our freedoms and our, and our security are, are protected, but you know, what are the threats that people are facing, are, are facing here? How does the Chinese government reach beyond its own borders into societies like these to threaten and harass the Uyghurs? One of the, the main vectors they use is really WeChat because Uyghur diaspora members is the only platform which they can use to speak with their relatives back home. So often this platform 
it's a double-edged sword in which Uyghurs use it to engage with their family members, but then they receive calls from the security services where threats are being made to those same family members, including intimidating pictures being sent to them of, of police with their, their mother or their father, for example. And it really creates a psychological burden. You know, many of these Uyghurs who've been interviewed, there was a great New York Times piece which drew attention to a lot of the, the trauma that some of these Uyghurs in the West have, the depression that some of them are facing, sleep problems, and other psychological ailments because of some of these threats that they're receiving. There's also a sustained campaigns such as smear campaigns where women have spoke out about the sexual abuse they've faced within the camps in Xinjiang, women who are now residing within North America. And they've had smear campaigns where the Chinese government has used its international media arms to bring their relatives onto TV, where the relatives are forced to issue statements really denigrating the moral character or integrity of the, the speakers. So that, of course, creates suffering as well, divisions within family. And then there's also just the, the hacking, the cyber campaigns, cyber attacks that have been targeted against activist organizations, usually DDoS attacks, which lead to shutdowns of their, their websites. This has really made the day-to-day activities of the Uyghur activist community very costly because increasingly a lot more budget needs to be allocated to basic cybersecurity services just to keep websites active or to keep newsletters going out to their communities. It leads to limited capacity because as you're spending increasing amounts of your budget defending your communications, you're really limiting the activities that you can engage in. And that's been quite effective for authoritarian regimes, which it's like a, an arms race in which they keep escalating their attacks at, at low cost to the regime, but to a very high cost to small-scale independent organizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you, you lay out such a compelling case of the, the, the scale and, and reach and, and variety um, of the threats that, that the Uyghurs are, are, are facing. Let me, let me ask you one uh, brief final question. What more can be done? What specific actions could Western governments, for instance, be taking to to combat these these very real and grave threats that you've documented? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that particularly the West could do would be to increase uh, refugee quotas for Uyghurs, including not just from Xinjiang, but from third countries where they're increasingly at risk of deportation or imprisonment. That would put them in much safer jurisdictions. And that would make a, a huge difference, you know, having Uyghurs leaving places such as the United Arab Emirates, where they're, they really are at, at threat. And the numbers would be quite small. In addition, I think there needs to be a lot more. I did a lot of surveys as part of this report where I spoke with Uyghurs about digital threats and how fearful they are online. And the majority of them said that they don't even know who to turn to or who could help them with digital security. So I think that Western governments in particular could do a lot to set up hotlines for not just Uyghurs, but other activists or community members who are being targeted by transnational repression and cyber campaigns, a way that they can just report these incidents to police. But they probably require as well Uyghur language um, programming to help Uyghurs be able to better communicate and explain the forms of repression that they're actually facing. Well, I think that's a, a good place to to wrap this up. Bradley, thank you so much for being with us and for all of your, your hard work and your 
continuing research on this important subject. And and let me urge our, our listeners to to read your work, read your essay on on the New Statesman's website, and and follow this. It's it's just so important to have awareness of of what's happening. This has been The World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy. And please rate us and leave us a nice review. It really does make a difference. Our producer has been Mae Robson. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. 